they had to do something. Katie Warren writes in Insider Magazine February of last year that Japan has appointed a minister of loneliness to try to reduce loneliness and social isolation among its residents as the country deals with rising suicide rates. During the month of October, more Japanese died from suicide than from COVID-19 in the entire year of 2020. Studies show that loneliness has been linked to a higher risk of health issues like heart disease and dementia and eating disorders. She writes, people have worked to solve the loneliness issue in a variety of ways. One company designed a robot to hold someone's hand when they're lonely. And one man charges people to simply sit with them and do nothing except keep them company. Even within families, loneliness is a nearly universal human experience. Uh, we look to relationships to make us feel self-fulfilled. We do the hard work of building families. But even then, at some point, we will all feel like we're alone and unfulfilled. We're going to talk today about church as family and about how Jesus said the revolutionary words that turned family on its head in the first century. This is going to be the gospel according to St. Luke in the 8th chapter beginning in the 19th verse. This is God's gospel. Now, Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, but they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. He replied, my mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. What can we learn here? First, just by looking at the expectations that Jesus' parents and the crowd would have had that upon Jesus and his relationship to his biological mother and brothers, we realize right off the bat that there are very, very different sets of expectations that family had in the ancient world in first century Palestine versus how we think of family and the expectations we have for it in the 21st century secular post-Christian West. Um, the expectations could not be more different. Modern family places the focus on personal self-fulfillment. Uh, you know, the idea is that if you can just find that other half, that better half, that special someone that is going to be, you know, pair bonded to you for life, girlfriend, boyfriend, spouse, partner, whatever you would call it, uh, that that person will bring you, that relationship is what will bring you self-fulfillment. Uh, and it can be a form of, of idolatry in which we take something that's very good, like a relationship or a marriage, something that God has given us, something that is holy, but we elevate something good and make it something ultimate. And when that happens, making that relationship or that marriage uh, into the ultimate thing that you have to have in order to feel self-fulfilled, in order to, to have a life worth living, uh, it's, it's this potential mate becomes an object of functional worship. Uh, if you begin to put them before God, uh, or maybe it's that we make how we want to feel when we're with them into the thing that we bow down to. But the sense of fulfillment in being coupled is, is 
is elevated to this thing of supreme importance and, and, and being coupled with them becomes what defines my life and my happiness. That's kind of a secular 21st century Western view of relationships. Uh, this expectation of finding fulfillment in this relationship or in this marriage, it's pervasive in our culture. Uh, when I try to explain to people how unrealistic it is, they honestly look at me like I am crazy. In its most intense form, it can become that quest for the unique soulmate, the one person on earth that is your other half that you have to find out of the seven billion people, and finding them will complete you, and you will be whole. Uh, when we make being coupled, and marriage is holy, but when we make having that partner into the ultimate thing that we must have in order to find self-fulfillment, then we find ourselves unable to have joy and unable to be content in this life unless we have that relationship and it's living up to our expectations of it. Uh, and that's a tough deal. Um, it can be a very powerful driving force in our lives, though. It can make us settle for an unhealthy relationship that we know is not good and that we know God doesn't want us to be in, but we'll settle for it because we can't bear the thought of not being in a relationship. It can cause us to settle for an abusive relationship because we feel that being uncoupled from this person will make us less fulfilled in life. It can uh, pressure you to enter into a relationship with somebody who is at a completely different place from you spiritually and who will ultimately not be able to, to provide um, spiritual support and encouragement. Um, our secular culture is continually impressing upon us this need to be coupled in order to be fulfilled. And through the stories we tell, we are inundated with this narrative of the unhappy soul who meets a special someone. They become a couple, and then they're personally fulfilled. Um, you know, and this, this is not recent. This is not me trashing 21st century culture. This goes way back. Think of all the fairy stories, you know, that, that you know, since the dawn of time, it seems like, We've had stories that end with those dreadful, unrealistic, wor misleading words, and they all lived. You've heard this. You've, you've seen this one before. Um, yeah, it's like every classic Disney movie except for, you know, Pocahontas and the Fox and the Hound ends happily ever after. For years, Walt Disney World's nighttime fireworks display, every night with the projection mapping and the pyrotechnics. What was it, what was it called? It was called Happily Ever After. As if the wedding is when your problems end. Yeah. That... I could just stop there. I mean, because y'all are, y'all are, y'all are making my illustration for me. I mean, <laughs> that expectation that another person will bring fulfillment and will release me from loneliness actually ends up compounding our loneliness. Uh, you know, we see what it does to people who aren't married. Uh, you know, it can leave the unmarried person feeling like a second-class citizen, a second-class human, a second-class church member. Uh, who will never find fulfillment in this life. And at worst, it leaves us losing friendships whenever uh, a best friend gets married. And, and, and then, you know, you know, for this reason, a man will leave his friends and cling to his wife. 
and they will live happily ever after. Um, but, uh, but throwing all of our emotional, relational, and spiritual needs onto one relationship it, with a significant other, I mean, it can end up cheapening all of our other God-given relationships. Uh, if you throw all your hopes and dreams into this one person, then your friendships become disposable and eventually get disposed of. Uh, Deanna Briotti uh, wrote in Spiritual Friendship a number of years ago. She wrote, damaging for Christian and non-Christian alike is the hollowing of friendship and its unqualified subordination to sexual love. In contemporary consciousness, she writes, a friend is comparable to a secondhand couch, comfortable to have around, disposable upon relocation, and incomparable in importance to one's boyfriend, girlfriend, or spouse. Uh, you know, we see what this does to married people when we believe that relationships and marriage are all about self-fulfillment. I mean, think two ticks, no dog both trying to leech feelings of self-fulfillment off of the other. Uh, Western culture places all of our intimacy and companionship needs into one relationship, and, and especially true for men who find it hard to build friendships uh, because they've only been trained to focus on the girl. Uh, and since no mate is good enough to fill the God-sized shoes we expect them to fill, then when your spouse or your boyfriend or your girlfriend ultimately disappoint you and they always disappoint you, but that's okay. You disappointed them too. When they do that, and because they're not Jesus, uh, then what we once idolized quickly becomes demonized, and the relationship can, can die because the dream of the relationship you thought you were going to have kills the relationship you actually do have. Um, it's hard. And... If by the time that happens, you've neglected your friendships to death, then you're going to be alone. You may be alone in a marriage or you may be alone in a breakup. Um, I like to remind dating couples, particularly when they're talking about marriage, I always tell them that, that getting married will not make you happy. Getting married makes you married. And that's different. You might want to write that one down. Being married is about committing to love someone, not leech self-fulfillment off of them, but to love a fellow sinner, accepting the challenges and put the gospel on display by seeing them all the way down in all of their weakness, all their shame, all of their humanity, and still being committed to them and saying, I will never leave you. That's self-sacrificial love. That's, that's, that's dying for your spouse, giving, not taking. Uh, and, and when you're both giving, that's like, Two dogs with no tick. It's beautiful. Um, that didn't come across as well as I would have hoped. But um, I won't use that one again. But, um, you know, this modern notion of, of coupling for fulfillment, it can be so destructive. And yet it's what pretty much everyone out there who hasn't been trained otherwise assumes. Uh, we see what it can do to, to people who have had that happy, wonderful marriage that is fulfilling because it's not all about seeking self-fulfillment. It's all about loving. Uh, and, and when they have that and then a spouse passes away, um, it can be devastating. The, the hole that's left, the pain that fills it. Um, and unless they have family nearby, you know, many older people end up feeling left out of life and left out of society. Um, now, that's our modern notion of coupling family for the sake of self-fulfillment. We see in this passage 
how radically different the traditional notion of the family was, the ancient notion, which didn't place the focus on self-fulfillment or, or on personal getting something out of it. it. The focus was on loyalty to the extended family, loyalty to your clan, loyalty to your people. Uh, you know, remember in the, the century, in first century Palestine, you know, it was still a tribal culture. You still had your tribe. You lived in your village. Your village was not made up of a whole bunch of people who just happened to live there. They're your villagers because you're related to them. It's your aunts. It's your uncles. It's your cousins. It's your nieces, your nephews, your great aunt because you live together with your clan in a tribal society. And heaven forbid, you're, thir you're, you're a 12-year-old girl and it's time for you to get married because that's when Jewish girls got married. You, know, you look around the village you don't want to, you know, you don't want to, you know, go to some other tribe because that puts property rights in dispute and causes problems. So you look around your village and you look for the 16-year-olds that aren't your siblings. And that's your arranged marriage. Uh, you know, very, very few people had the money and resources to be able to marry primarily out of romantic feeling. Um, it just wasn't realistic. Uh, you didn't have a lot of options. Marriage was about attaining heirs about having children who would support you, who would help work the fields and would support you in your old age when you're no longer able to support yourself, who would give you descendants to carry on your family name and to inherit the family property. Uh, and the family in the ancient world was not just the nuclear family. Family meant aunts and uncles and cousins and nephews and, and the whole extended clan. You know, it's, it's, it's particularly white and European Western European uh, notions of family that have excluded it and shrunken it down to, to the nuclear family. There is still a value in the nuclear family. God says in Galatians or in, in Genesis two uh, that a man will leave his father and mother and cling to his wife and they'll be one flesh. But that was always in the context of a tribal society in which even if you never married, you were never ever alone because you always had nephews and nieces and aunts and uncles and cousins who gave you daily opportunity to, to, to know and be known, daily opportunity to love, giving love and receiving love because you were always with family. Um, you had duties and obligations to this larger family. You were expected to defend your family members, extended family members. You were expected to cover their debts through whatever means so that they would not be sold into slavery because of their debts, because uh, particularly the eldest brother's job was to go after straying brothers. You went after family members who strayed from the family. You made sure that the family's name was honored and you respected your elders and honored them by doing for the most part what they instructed. And if that sounds really draining, I'll tell you they had the same obligations to you so that uh, they would be obligated to pay your debts in order to maintain your freedom. They were obligated to defend you when you were under attack. They were the ones who would go after you if you strayed and brought you back to the family. And as you aged, they would increasingly defer to your increased wisdom and experience. Now, this is if the family was functional. Yeah. Uh, this is a million miles from chasing after personal self-fulfillment through one special relationship in which you suck your meaning into your life. Uh, it was about mutual duties and obligations to the larger extended clan in which at best one could live without ever being alone. Even uh, and, 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 and these people 
there was a context in which you had family intimacy, even if you didn't marry, because these are the people who knew what you looked like first thing in the day. They knew what you smell like at the end of the day. They know your weaknesses. They know the real you. You know, you can't hide in a village of your extended family members. You can't put on some kind of, you know, you can't kind of do the modern thing and, and construct an image of yourself to impress them because they'll see right through it. They know you. Uh, these are people you didn't look to to gain personal fulfillment. These were people you prioritized because your extended family in your village were the place where you were known, where you belonged. You belonged to them and they belonged to you. You were family, you were kin. Now, what does this have to do with this passage? This is a whole lot of background on how family expectations are different than they were 2,000 years ago. It relates here. When Jesus' mother Mary and his brothers, and that could have included cousins, were wanting a word with Jesus, they couldn't get to him, so they sent word to him while he's teaching. Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside waiting to talk to you and what everyone in that space would have expected was for jesus to say excuse me i'll be right back because his priority as the eldest brother in that family obligated with duties to that family was to find out what his mother and brothers needed and then when that was taken care of he could continue teaching this was a very serious matter they were not expecting what jesus did next because in just a few sentences, Jesus redefines family. Look at the passage. I mean, what ought Jesus to have done? Again, he should have stepped away. The cultural pressure to do that would have been huge. But he did something revolutionary. What did he do? It was radical. Jesus asked the crowd, who is my mother and who are my brothers? He's doing this publicly. And they would have been like, uh, Mary and um, James, and they're, they're back there. And he's like, no, no. Here are my mother and my brothers. For everyone who does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. The church becomes the ultimate family in which God is Father, and Jesus is the Son of God, and we are his sisters and brothers, and we are his kin, and he is our kin. Uh, don't miss what he just did. This redefines for his followers the, that, that, that family in the church, what the church is, is family in that ancient sense where we are siblings and, and we owe each other mutual duties and obligations. For the Christian, the church becomes the primary community, the essential extended family network. This means that we who have followed Jesus owe it to one another to take care of each other, to pay our debts, to keep each other safe and from being enslaved, to go after those of us who are straying, to defend those who are wrongly attacked, uh, because we're members of the same tribe, we're kin. It's like what Riley read earlier from Acts 4 about how the early Christians, they were selling lands and possessions in order to provide food and housing for their fellow Christians who had traveled. What does it mean that Jesus makes us family? It means we are siblings. And as the adopted family of Jesus, we are united to him as kin. That means not only family duties and obligations to one another, but also family intimacy. The church is supposed to be a place where you can have closeness, uh, not throwing all of that 
intimacy need onto the back of one romantic relationship, but sharing it with your extended family in Christ. Uh, closeness. We need spiritual siblings who, who are our s- sisters and brothers, not just spiritually, but experientially. You know, a brother is someone who knows what you smell like. A brother is someone who knows what you eat for breakfast. A brother is someone who knows what you look like at the end of the day. A brother is someone you don't have to get dressed up for. A brother is someone who who knows what you're facing with your health. A brother is somebody who knows your insecurities. A brother can call you on the carpet when you're wrong, and a brother will defend you publicly to the death. A brother will let you borrow his car. A brother is someone you can go off and do something adventurous with. A brother will carry you to your grave in your last worldly calling. That is the holy bond of kinship. And that, Jesus says, is his vision for the church. It means making sure that every one of us has some level of community with some level of depth. Uh, It also means making sure they have community with some level of fixity. Um, What kind of community uh, that can face the the daunting challenge of of modern Western societies, a kind of community uh, that, that has people who are willing to settle down because Westerners, it's very difficult because we travel a lot. We travel for jobs. We travel for, for uh, this, that. We want to be near the beach. We want to be near the mountains. We, we get up and unplant ourselves and replant ourselves in a different field an awful lot. And there are godly reasons to do that. You know, that's the mission of God in one sense. But uh, I see a lot of people move for jobs, for money, for career. I want to see people move for church. I want to see people move for mission. I want to see people move or stay put for the sake of building the family of God with a level of intimacy where you're not having to start over again with a new set of people every three to four years. Um, The gospel creates the church as this kind of family where you can be seen all the way down and yet be fully known and fully loved, fully accepted. What does it look like for a church to function as family for people who follow Jesus? It means making sure that people are known, making sure somebody knows when you're out of town, that someone notices when you don't show up, someone notices or knows when their plane is landing, someone knows to check in on their pets. It means having refrigerator rights in somebody's house, somebody's house where you can go in and open the refrigerator without having to ask because you have become family to them and you have the right to open the door. Imagine a church when someone's basement floods Family members show up with pumps and shop backs and squeegees prepared to get wet, dirty, and sore, not because they're looking for personal self-fulfillment, but because they have a family obligation to love, and they want to make sure their family member is cared for. Uh, Because healthy families show up. A church where when a pandemic hits, a whole bunch of members who still have jobs hand over their stimulus checks so the deacons can get funds to the family members who really need it. A church where there's intimacy, where someone knows and understands why you don't want to come to church on Mother's Day and thinks that's okay. Where someone remembers why the holidays are going to be harder for you this year. Where we can reminisce about those we've lost who have been promoted to glory. Where we help each other raise our kids by being there. Even if that just means helping a parent chase down a stray toddler before they reach these stairs. You know, um, a church family that that goes after our strays where you don't have to hide a struggle with 
your marriage or a struggle with mental health or a struggle with sin, where somebody notices when somebody's missing. Imagine a church where no one views church as a program to judge, but rather as a family to which they're committed and a family which is committed to them. A church where God sets the lonely in families. I see so much of this in you all already, and I pray that God grows us a greater and greater sense of this love. Um, uh, W.H. Alden, the English poet, in 1951 wrote to his dear friend Elizabeth Mayer. He wrote, there are days when the knowledge that there will never be a place which I can call home, that there will never be a person with whom I shall be one flesh seems more than I can bear. You see, Alden was gay. He had abandoned Christianity as a young man and had gone through several relationships with other men, but none of them gave him anything like a marriage that he wanted, no matter how much he tried. And in 1940, Alden returned to the Christian faith and re-entered the Anglican church, ending the next year his relationship with another man and accepting what he believed to be God's call for him to walk in celibacy sexually inactive in singleness. But even after returning to the faith, his loneliness was still there. He was still made in God's image. That longing to be in relationship was there. It seemed more than he could bear, but he continued to mayor with these words. And if it wasn't for you, and a few, how few like you, I don't think I could. See, for Alden, from his perspective, that small network of close Christian friends who knew him, who loved him, who walked through life with him. That dependable group of Christian friendships was the thing that made his life livable. Jesus doesn't call us to be like family. He says we are, and he calls us to live in that way, for a church to live out its true nature as a family with with mutual responsibilities uh, in a clan-based family network. It means having room at your table for another. And the way this is possible is because in this family, our elder brother's name is Jesus. In doing so, in becoming family for us, Jesus bound himself. As the the, the older brother, he took on the mutual duties and obligations of the eldest son within a clan-based family network. He obligated himself to be there with us and with you because of his duty as your brother. As an elder brother, he's obligated to chase down the stray when they start walking from the fold. He will go after you if you try to run. He will hunt you down, the hound of heaven, and bring you back because he is the elder brother. It was the prodigal son's elder brother's responsibility to go after him. He did not. Jesus did. As elder brother... Jesus is obligated to pay off your debts and liabilities in order to keep you out of slavery. And that is what Jesus did on the cross when he took all of my debts and liabilities, all your debts and liabilities. And as our elder brother, he took all those debts upon himself and he went to the cross and he paid those debts down. And you are no longer in debt if you have Jesus. You are set free as a child of God and a sibling of Jesus who has an eternal destiny and a hope. As an elder brother, Jesus promises to never leave us because he loves us. He comes after us. 
He pursues us. He sees us all the way down and loves us. In the 2008 film Taken, Liam Neeson plays Brian Mills, a former CIA operative who determines to track down his teenage daughter after she's been kidnapped by human traffickers while on a trip with a girlfriend in France. There's one gripping scene in which Neeson talks to his daughter's abductor after he's received a cell phone left behind at the crime scene. Neeson states his clear intent to seek and, and save his daughter. He tells his abductors this. They've taken his daughter. He says, I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. I can tell you I don't have money. But what I do have are a very particular set of skills. Skills that I've acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go now, that will be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you do not, I will look for you, and I will find you, and I will kill you. The abductor coolly replies, good luck. There ends the conversation in the start of Neeson's unrelenting pursuit. Earlier in the film, as the storyline is set up, we, we become familiar with Neeson's earlier work, life-consuming work with the CIA, and, and, and the demand that placed on his family, and the strain it put on his relationship with his daughter. And so he chose to, to leave that career path behind in order to reestablish a relationship with this very same daughter that has now been abducted. And it's clear that Neeson is willing to pay any cost to gain her back because that's his little girl. It's, it's clear he'll do whatever it takes to find her. And as far as he's concerned, all of his training, all of his skills, all of his time put in on the job are now focused on one thing, finding the daughter he loves and bringing her safely home. The balance of the film is action-packed as Neeson urgently, he only has 96 hours to accomplish his task, and skillfully weaves his way through language barriers and governmental red tape and, and crime lords' elaborate hierarchies to find his daughter. And after dispatching numerous villains, Neeson finally finds his daughter on a yacht sold to a wealthy businessman. She collapses into her father's arms, and she says, Daddy, you came for me bloody, beaten, and triumphant. Neeson holds his daughter as he quietly says, I told you I would. Friends, that's what Jesus did for us when we were in bondage, when we were enslaved, when we were captive to the world, the flesh, and the devil. Jesus went after us. He pursued us and brought himself to us, brought us back to him, back into the Father's fold. He brought us home as he always said he would, only it wasn't at the cost of the villain's lives, but at the cost of his very own because he loves you. He sees you. He knows you. That's what family does. Family pursues family. And he's unwilling to lose you. Only, only Jesus did it for the joy. The joy set before him. He endured the cross. The joy of having you home. Let's pray.